Ignore. I'm going to see if I can. Are you recording? Okay. He says wide-eyed like he like, isn't sure. am I? <laughs> oh, my gosh. All right. Let's see if I can do this. I'm, I'm so used to opening it the correct way. Okay, you ready? Gotta just kind of let it. Oh! Happy New Year! <laughs> Happy New Year! Are you a good witch or a bad bitch? Bad bitch, bad bitch. I've been a rebel all my life. We will not remain hidden figures. We have names. Oh, if it's naughty to rule your lips, take your shoulders, take your hips, and let a lady confess I want to be bad. I didn't kid you, did I? Well, now you know. For the record, you're supposed to silently open those things. It's supposed to be like a <laughs> sound if you do it right. But that's more fun. Have you ever uh, seen someone machete a fucking yes. champagne bottle? It's machete? Crazy. They literally crack the whole top off. They take a machete and they go, and the whole, this whole part just explodes off. Oh, my God. It's very wasteful of the champagne. Also, that sounds dangerous. It is. That sounds yeah. like you'd hurt Gosh, somebody. Sure. Well, like, I think sommeliers <laughs> like to do it. They're pretty good at it. Sommeliers like to machete the tops of champagne off. This is like little gimlet glasses. I know. Aren't they cute? Happy New Year. Happy New Year. All right. Oh, oh we're tinging. Ting. That actually was really loud and i hope that it doesn't blow everyone's fucking ears out <laughs> diana do you have um things for our first episode of the decade <laughs> i'm trying <laughs> there's a lot of pressure writing on this you gotta have the most perfect intro ever the most perfect of perfect intros all right well now i'm just gonna give up oh shit <laughs> i fucked up shouldn't have put so much pressure on you what should we, maybe we should talk about, like, what we hope for in the new year, for in the new year, like goals or, or things like, so I don't like to do um, New Year's resolutions because I think that they're, you, it's too easy to beat yourself up for not following through on certain things. Yeah, well, we're now also in a new decade. And so it's like, what do you want for yourself in, in this decade? Not, I'm going to lose 30 pounds, but right. like, what do you envision so, for your for the for the 20s yeah what's been interesting for me because obviously i this this last decade has basically been like my 20s and mm-hmm. a couple of years in my 30s and um for the most part i have done a lot of things that i did not expect to do self-discovery for me there's been like so really much. really solidifying my identity and my idea of myself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think that I have my identity and idea of myself has completely changed in a lot of ways because, for example, like when I was 18, I was like, I'm going to be a published author and that is that. That is what I'm going to be. Done. And then by the time I graduated college um, at the beginning of this current decade, I was like, I want to write for television. That's what I want to do. I'm going to write for TV. Like, that's what I'm, that's where I'm going to go. You did graduate college at the beginning of this decade. Yeah, I graduated. graduated from college almost 10 years ago. 2010. Yeah. Crazy. So at the beginning of this decade, I was like, I'm probably going to publish a novel at some point. Like, that's a goal, obviously. But I also really want to write for television. And I had an education now that, gave me the the basis for that right and I was very interested in film theory and analyzing film and television and all of those things um we had gotten through the writer's strike like all of that stuff had Mm -hmm. already happened yeah and um and then about four years into that my world pivoted you know Ben and I came out to New York instead of going to LA which meant I had to choose a new career path. I had, to, mm. I had to pick something else. And so I've been in publishing since then. But you've still been writing. But I've still been writing. And, and I have learned a lot about the industry and also how I see myself as a creator. And somehow, throughout all of that, I have found my way back to writing you know, television and writing screenplays. And I've sort of you know, ended this decade 
a little bit where I started in terms of what I'm creating. But with more wisdom. Yeah. With a much better basis of understanding and skill. Like, I I just, I know story so intrinsically now in a way I didn't then that I am really excited to see what the next decade brings because I'm going into it with those skills and I didn't really have them before. That's cool. So, yeah, I don't know. Looking forward. I'm I'm interested. I'm very interested to see what happens and also to see what happens with publishing in the next few years cuz publishing sure. is in such a, you know, it's it's changing a lot. How we consume all media is changing a yeah. lot. Just like the speed of technological advancement and the way people consume media. Mhm. I mean, yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting like we're going back to, or at least a lot of us are going back to, um, the model we've taught, and we've talked about this model because we've talked about actors on this show from the early 1900s. Who this was the system. Um, we're going back to a contract model in a lot of ways, like Amazon and Netflix and Hulu are all signing where you're linked to a, a studio, where you're linked to a studio, of projects, and you sign a contract for a certain number of time. And for a certain amount of money and for a certain number of properties. And you do that. That's what you do for, you know, Amazon for the next 10 years or Hulu for the next 10 years. Yeah. It's interesting because we haven't done that. Like that hasn't been our system since the United Artists all got together. Chaplin and Mary Pickford and um, the others who I can't remember. Uh, You know? Yeah. Anyway, it's fascinating. Yeah. I'm going off on weird tangents, but that's okay. You know, that's but kind of what we're doing. It's like it's something I'm curious to see, like the fruits of mm. in the next decade. I like that. Yeah. What do you think? Um. Well, I think I've spent a lot of this last decade growing, and I know that that sounds really cliche and trite or whatever, but. No. <clears throat> It's been very deep for me and meaningful, um, which I think is the point of your 20s. So I feel yep. very proud of that. Um, you know, I obviously graduated from college. I went to grad school and yeah. got a master's degree um, where I, I grew a lot. I kind of flew the nest, as it were, since I went to college so close to home. Going to grad school was me kind of moving away from home for the first time. And you really wanted... I mean, at least when we were in high school. I wanted to go had... to school in England. Oh, yeah, yeah. So you envisioned yourself going away, and then you ended <clears> up <throat> staying close to home mm-hmm. instead. Yeah, well, I want, yeah. For college, I wanted to go to New York. That's what, yeah, yeah. That's what I was like. You wanted to go to NYU, Grad school, didn't you? I wanted to go to England. Okay. And then that ended up not happening, which was another moment. It's interesting, like, the, the, the growth moments, they repeated themselves for me where my goal schools put me on wait lists and then didn't take wait lists that happened both with college and grad school where I almost and I almost got into my my preferred grad school twice and but they didn't take I got called back and I got put on the wait list twice oh my god and then they didn't take anyone off the wait list and so I ended up in Georgia but it's kind of that decision guided the rest of my – I wouldn't be where I am now if I yeah. didn't go there. Anyway, um, and I've worked, you know, through some significant trauma in therapy, like truly feel like I've worked through it. Yeah. And and come out the other side, like in ways that I didn't even realize I was still in the woods and needed to come out. Grief and things like that. Yeah, grief yeah. and anger and – I thought things I had moved on from and didn't need help with anymore. It's amazing how you can learn that. Um, yeah. I mean, career-wise, it's fascinating to see the the, the yeah. pivots and turns that my career has taken. But, you know, the main goal has still kind of remained the same. Mm-hmm. But I think in this decade, I look forward to, because I think you, your 20s are where you try and figure out who you are and who you want to be. And I think your 30s and beyond is where you kind of become more comfortable in that identity that you figured out yeah and i'm excited to to blossom in that way because even now i feel more confident with myself as a person than i did five years ago oh yeah and i can't imagine 
you know, in five years, I'm sure it'll be hopefully significantly better if I put in the work and right. truly try and give myself the grace that I deserve and have been too mean to myself. And that's always a goal for me. But that's so I mean, but I, in my 30s and yeah. in, in, in the 20s, the night the, the 1920s, the 2020s, <laughs> I would like to um, invest in that, invest in me and you know, standing up for myself more and, and taking care of myself more and setting better boundaries and things. I like all of that. Yeah. I like what you said about giving yourself grace. Yeah. Because that is something that especially, you know, especially women and girls, like we're taught we don't deserve those things. Yeah. <laughs> not from ourselves and not from other people. Mm-hmm. And I, it's funny that you know, self-care became such a big thing this decade. Yeah, and frequently it becomes self-indulgent. Right. But, but I, I think it came from a place of, like, giving yourself grace. Exactly. And because we just don't do that for ourselves. Right. We don't allow ourselves to, like, be forgiven. Yeah. You know, or or just have a moment of Show downtime. compassion to yourself the way you would theoretically give it to others. Yeah. It's really hard to show it to yourself. Yeah. Um, and it's one of the things I started learning in therapy about. Yeah. So I like giving compassion a, to you, showing grace to yourself. Yeah. As a, and as a word and as a concept to guide to guide you, guide us in the year. I think investing in yourself is really. I think that's an awesome way to investing to dive in yourself the in the year. most positive of ways. Yeah. 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 And and not letting other people tell you that your ideas are stupid hey you know what i mean because like cheers to that that's something i think i'm gonna need a lot of with some of the ideas i have and want to pursue i need to make sure i'm not letting anyone make me feel like my ideas aren't worth pursuing right and if you give yourself enough grace and support mm-hmm. yeah and that won't be as significant if somebody who poos your idea yeah you're like well then it's not for you that's fine but i know it's great right i know it's i mean i was i was starting that with the short film a little bit yeah and i'm hoping to continue that into the into the next year and decade so um here's to investing in ourselves in in 2020 and the 20s overall we too far to clink so we're faking it doesn't ting, work. Ting. Ting. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> Welcome to Candid Hour. Candid. The candid hour. Probably better than anything I would have found. Ooh. Well, then I'm glad that uh, we did that. Yes. I was like, oh, yeah, <clears> it's <throat> the new year. We should probably just fucking talk, talk about, about the new year. Being in the new year. That sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have a lady you want to tell me about? Girl, I've got a lady. What if the answer to that was, oh, fuck, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. Is that, what, was that why we're here? I thought we were just here to, to, to cheers the new year and get drunk on Prosecco. Yeah, and watch The Mandalorian. That's, mm-hmm. that's why we're here, right? Hannah, you don't even know. I don't even know. Baby Yoda Adventures. That's what I call it. Uh, Yeah, we'll get to that. <laughs> But in the meantime... In the meantime, the real reason we're here. Are you a good witch? Or a bad bitch? Let us know by becoming a patron on on our our Patreon. Patreon. (laughs) Oh, no. Patreon is a service that helps content creators like ourselves keep the ship going and make sure that we're able to cover all the costs that uh, come along with doing our podcast. And the more patrons we get, hopefully the more content we can start creating exclusively for patrons. Yes. So if you are interested in something like that, please become a patron so that we can start creating that content for you. Also, when you become a patron, you will get a shout out on our podcast and we will thank you personally on air. How exciting is that? Very exciting. Yeah, yeah. You can find us at patreon.com slash podcast. So this person came up because a movie came out on Christmas that is an adaptation of one of her famous works. Are you going to do Louisa May Alcott? 
I'm going to do Louisa May Alcott. Fuck yeah, dude. <laughs> Today. I'm so, I am so excited to see Little Women. I'm I'm very curious because obviously it's been adapted several times. Yeah. In fact, it's even been adapted. It was adapted by the BBC just last year. And Maya Hawke played Joe. Right? Interesting. Isn't that so fascinating? So there's already a new adaptation uh, to go along with the new adaptation. Yeah. And, and what blows my mind is that it's such it's so American mm-hmm. and there's so many not American actors in this uh, movie. I know. None of the, the the girls are played by Americans. But Greta Gerwig is like she and Saoirse Ronan are probably just going to be besties forever. Yeah. Well, always. I mean, OK, so Laura Dern and Meryl Streep are American. Yep. But then, uh, I mean, obviously, Saoirse Ronan is Irish, mm-hmm. and Florence Pugh is British, yep. Emma Watson is British. Yep. It's, I'm very curious, and I'm especially curious because part of what made me want to talk about Louisa was finding some interesting information about her and her life, and I'm, I'll be interested to see if Greta um, used any of that as a jumping off point for Well, because Little Women adaptation. is semi-autobiographical, correct? Kind of. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you. So um, I got my information from, obviously, a few places, Wikipedia, biography.com, um, NPR.org. Mental Floss had some great facts like on her. I like Mental Floss, yeah. yeah. And then um, Lo and Behold, which is Melinda Lowe's newsletter. And Melinda is a young adult author, but she's always been obsessed with little women and had a really great newsletter about, you know, the the adaptation and the story as in general hooray so uh louis i'm sure greta gerwig is someone we could talk about on this podcast too but anyway but maybe it's still a little too contemporary she's an interesting one i know but that's we talk about complicated women that's true that's true i digress my feelings about greta are complicated i agree same (laughs) but but she's worth talking about because she's a notable female director these days yeah anyway louisa Louisa. For real. Let's fuck Deanna. Shut up. Deanna. Give yourself give grace. Give yourself grace, girl. I'm already failing at this. And I am not failing at this. I'm. <laughs> All right. Now shut the fuck up. <laughs> Thank you. OK. That's what I needed. <laughs> OK. OK. Good. All right. So Louisa May Alcott was an American author. Yes. For those of us who don't know, who wrote under various pseudonyms and only started using her own name when she was ready to commit to writing. Okay. Alcott was a best-selling novelist of the late 1800s, and many of her works, most notably Little Women, remain popular today. She was born on November 29th, uh, 1832, in Germantown, Pennsylvania. Does that make her a Scorpio, or does that make her a Sag? Sagittarius, yeah. I believe. I think, because it's November 22nd through yeah. December yeah. 22nd. Yeah. you're right. Okay. Important, because yeah. we were talking about astrology earlier. She seems so. like a Sagittarius She does. Me. That's, yeah. Louisa's parents, Amos Bronson Alcott and Abigail Alcott, raised their four daughters in a politically active household in Massachusetts. Hell yeah. As a child, Louisa briefly lived with her family in a failed transcendentalist commune. Wait, which, I'm sorry. Can you repeat that sentence? As a child. As a child, she briefly lived with her family in a failed transcendentalist commune. In what year? Um, the 1830s to 40s? There's early no 40s? way I would have ever guessed that that existed in America at that time for white people. So I <laughs> tried to look up transcendentalism and totally forgot to actually include what it is. Do you know what it is? No. Oh, fuck. I'm going to have to. Hold on. I'll do it. Okay. You, you do it. Transcendentalism, an idealistic philosophical and social movement which developed in New England mm-hmm. around 1836 in reaction to rationalism. Ah. Influenced by romanticism, pl- platonism. <laughs> I was like, is it Platonism or platonism? I think it's platonism. Oh. And Kantian philosophy, it taught that divinity pervades all nature and humanity and its members held progressive views on feminism and communal living. Interesting. Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau were central figures. Ah, okay, that makes sense. Based on the idea that in order to understand the nature of reality, one must first examine and analyze the reasoning process which governs the nature of experience. My goodness, this is why I forgot to research it. It's like an old school hippie commune. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. 
And it failed. Um, this one that she apparently... As many communes do, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. It either oh, turns God. into a cult or just collapses on itself or both. Yikes. Well, so that was the beginning of her life. That's fun. <laughs> um, additionally, her parents, uh, or she helped her parents hide slaves who had escaped via the Underground Railroad. Cool. And she was lucky enough to have discussions about women's rights with Margaret Fuller. According to Harriet Ryson, who is um, a historian who researched her, uh, her father, Amos Bronson Alcott, was a forward-thinking educator. He was friends with some of the most influential thinkers of his time, um, which, you know, the transcendentalism thing, Ralph Waldo Emerson, that explains a little bit of that. Yep. Yet he never managed to earn a living or take care of his family. I mean, that sounds like 20th century hippies in a very stereotypical way in the 1970s. Yeah, and it influenced her It's all about free love, but do you have a job, you lazy hippie? Right, and he never really seemed bothered by the fact that he didn't. Um, As Louisa put it, he was a man in a balloon with his family holding the ropes, trying to hold him down to earth. That's a very writerly way to put it. (laughs) Yes, it is. He seemed to live on air and in the air and had no concern about earning a living. It didn't seem to bother him that his family was literally starving. Oof. Yeah. Yeah. Still, um, his friends included the likes of Nathaniel Hawthorne, Henry David Thoreau, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, and Ralph Waldo Emerson, which I assume he connected. He either connected with them through the commune or he connected to the commune through them. Yeah, one or the other. That sounds like a pretty good hypothesis. Yeah, yeah. So she socialized and studied informally with her father's friends. She read books in Emerson's library and learned about botany at Walden Pond with Thoreau. That's crazy, right? (laughs) Uh, She later wrote a poem called Thoreau's Flute for her friend. She also socialized with abolitionist Frederick Douglass and women's suffrage activist Julia Ward Howe. But Frederick Douglass is alive today, so our president says. Oh, oh, well, then I don't know how she could have possibly (laughs) socialized with him. That's so confusing. Rad. Yeah, she was like surrounded by these um, incredible thinkers. Yeah. Yeah. Her family was not well off, obviously. So as a teenager, Louisa worked a variety of teaching and servant jobs to earn money for her family. Okay. Uh, Bryson says they really ate bread and water for long stretches of time. Woof. Louisa was hungry, and she worked to rescue her family from poverty. Part of her story is a real rags-to-riches tale. Wow. Yeah. From the time she was young, she vowed that she would see to it that her family would not be poor. The high-mindedness of the fictitious March family of Little Women uh, contrasts starkly, that's a hard hard combo of words to say, with Alcott's real-life motivations. She was driven, in large part, by the desire to not be poor. Pretty much like that. Well, yeah, it's hard. Yeah, it's fucking hard to be poor. And she was Especially determined. with a big family. Ugh, and your dad's not doing anything. Which, you know, at this time, men were expected to help support the family the, the most because they had more opportunity. Yeah. And yet. Uh, so she first became a published writer at 19 when a woman's magazine printed one of her poems. For reasons that are unclear, she used a pen name, a pen name I love. Flora Fairfield. Oh, that's great. It's fucking great, right? Flora Fairfield. And alliterative. I know. She really likes alliteration. That's one of her things throughout her life as a writer. Um, perhaps because she felt that she was still developing. But in 1854, at age 22, Louisa used her own name for the first time. She published Flower Fables, a collection of fairy tales she had written six years earlier for Emerson's daughter, Ellen. Wow. That wasn't even something she wrote then. She published some. She felt confident enough to use her own real name to publish something she wrote when she was what seventeen. You um, said she was twenty three mm-hmm. or twenty two. Twenty two. So when she was sixteen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I assume she revised. Well, but, yeah, but still, know, but still, that's yeah. gutsy. Yeah, she was ready. She was like, okay, I feel it's about finding that confidence. I feel like I understand better now. Yeah. Um, she used she gave another. herself some grace. <laughs> and decided to use her real name. Yeah. It's interesting, though, because so much of her writing at that time and even, uh, you know, past that time was to make money. Like, it wasn't necessarily a super creative pursuit for her at all times. 
And so to... I, mean, I think that's true of a lot of writers is. throughout history and, and especially today. It is. But I do think it's interesting that she was like, I'm finally ready to use my own name for these books that I don't even really want to write. Hmm. You know what I mean? Sure. So she used another nom de plume for her pulpier stories. Before writing Pulpier little, meaning what exactly? Before writing Little Women, she wrote gothic pulp fiction under the name A.M. Barnard. Continuing her penchant for alliteration, she wrote books and plays called Perilous Play and Pauline's Passion and Punishment to make easy money. These okay. sensational, melodramatic works are strikingly different than the more wholesome, righteous vibe she captured in Little Women, and she did not advertise her former writing as her own um, until long after Little Women became popular. Wow. So she was like, this is just a thing I'm doing just to make the money, get our family more than bread, and, you know, do, do what I have to do in order to survive. Use the skills I have. In 1861, at the beginning of the Civil War, Louisa sewed Union uniforms in Concord. Oh. Yeah. And the next year, she enlisted as an army nurse, which I had no idea. I I love that this was a time period where you can just go, I'll be a nurse. And they're like, great. Do you have any medical training? No, I'm a writer. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I write pulp fiction. You're a nurse. Stamp of approval. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Um... This I mean, I guess the point was like, are you smart enough to handle this? Great. Bye. Can you put a bandage on? Can you like Can you staunch some bleeding? The weary men? Right. A lot of it was comforting people. A lot of it was like being, you know, having good bedside manner. Yeah. You know. Yeah, yeah. Not a, you weren't really intending to Nursing save lives. Nursing then was not quite the same. Yeah. They didn't know. When Louisa left to do her stint of nursing, her father quipped that he was, quote, sending his only son to war. Ryson says, Cute. yeah, Ryson says. Because she was a breadwinner? Because she was the breadwinner. She was not only the breadwinner, which was classically a male role at the time, but when her younger sister died, she also took on the role of the daughter who does not marry and takes care of the aging parents. Oh, boy. Yeah. But from what I gather from Louisa, she was content with that. Like, she wasn't super interested in marrying. She was a lot like Joe March. So in a Washington, D.C. hotel-turned-hospital, she comforted dying soldiers and helped doctors perform amputations. Ugh. During you this time, you have to have a, a yeah. stomach of steel to do that. Uh, yeah, well, and then the like trauma, like the, it's. I can't imagine she doesn't think about it anymore after that. Yeah, it'd be horrifying because back then they had no anesthetic and it was really Ooh. gruesome. I feel, but obviously, it's in certain instances probably not all of the instances but it was necessary yeah but not all of them but thank god for medical advancement am i right yeah you don't have to have non-trained women performing amputations anymore (laughs) yeah (laughs) i mean you know during this time she wrote about her experiences in her journal and in letters to her family and in 1863 she published hospital sketches a, fit, a fictionalized account based on her letters of her stressful yet meaningful experiences as a wartime nurse. Yeah, I mean, I guess trauma is good fodder for literature. Yeah, yeah. Well, she probably needed to fucking write it down. No kidding. Um, but the book became massively popular, and it was reprinted in 1869 with more material. So that was kind of her first real, like, success as huh. Louisa May Alcott. Um, and I think probably why she continued to publish under her own name from there even though she wasn't always writing things she wanted to write it was now at that point it was the name that was selling her right so after a month and a half of nursing in dc alcott caught typhoid fever and pneumonia both fuck yeah and she received the standard treatment at the time a toxic mercury compound called calomel no yeah Uh, fuck your brain up yeah and apparently it was used throughout the 19th century which is super fun really really great doctors didn't know what the fuck they were doing because of this exposure to mercury uh louisa suffered from symptoms of mercury poisoning for the rest of her life she had a weakened immune system vertigo and apparently episodes of hallucinations 
Jesus Christ. Can you imagine the rest of your life being plagued with hallucinations? No. That seems insane. <laughs> um, but to combat the pain caused by the mercury poisoning, as well as a possible autoimmune disorder, maybe lupus, that could have been triggered by it, she took opium. She was a she was an opium user. <laughs> yeah. It's going on so many avenues I did not realize it was going to. I just find her so it's so fascinating because we think of I guess and maybe this is just me, but like when you think of Louisa May Alcott, you think of like Jane Austen or, you know, the Bronte sisters or Yeah, whoever. which is funny because they were earlier. They if were I'm not earlier. Mistaken. I mean, I know Jane Austen was. The Bronte sisters maybe in between. Yes. Maybe. But Again, way, I don't know what the fuck I'm They're sort about. of like these nebulous female... Female authors of the 19th century. Yes. Yeah. And she lived a really interesting life and had a lot of, you know, personal things that plagued her. So she's basically a heroin addict. But I the mean, early form of it. Yeah, a little bit. But yeah, I mean, it was. it's more like... It's more like that's an ex- that's suffering a- from chronic pain. Yeah, so you, you use opium. Yeah. I know opium's not quite as uh, intense... I don't think it's not as concentrated as heroin anyway. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't know. People didn't immediately die from opium and heroin. I mean, I don't know. What am I saying? I don't know what I'm talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Um, So just remember that she was a heroin addict (laughs) throughout all of this. She was an opiate user. Jesus Christ. Oh, my God. <laughs> my God. I just think it's important to know that she was suffering from chronic pain and because possibly an autoimmune disorder. mercury poisoning? Because she had mercury poisoning. Inflicted on her by some fucking doctor. Yeah. Yikes. Um, and that was the state, that was the state of her mind and, and her body when she wrote Little Women, which wow. is so fascinating. Yeah. Um, but... In 1867, Thomas Niles, an editor at a publishing house, I don't know which one, asked Louisa Alcott if she wanted to write a novel for girls. They were like, you're doing super well. Your name is selling these these hospital sketches. Like, people want to know what you're working on. They want to see more from you. And we think that you have a future writing for girls. Like, we think we could sell a lot of your books. So they wanted her to be uh, a female-focused YA author. Exactly. That is exactly what they wanted. Um, Although she tried to get excited about the project, she thought she wouldn't have much to write about because she was a tomboy. She'd always been a tomboy. She didn't really, like, do, you know, quote, girlish things. I mean, you heard what her dad said about her. My only son is going off to war. Like, she always had 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 that role in her house and in her life. But it's funny that that even by today's standards... a lot of tomboys, at least in our generation, I certainly tried to be one of them, seem to think that being a tomboy makes you, quote unquote, not like a girl. Mm-hmm. When obviously there are tons of tomboys who can connect to material about them for them. Well, and that that's that you that's very girly. Yeah, I think that Little Women kind of proves that. Yeah. Oh, for sure. You know what I mean? Which is what the and unexpected the, how people connect to Joe March. Exactly. Yeah. Um but yeah, she was like I just don't know if that's really for me. Like I don't know that I have much to say to young girls. Interesting. And uh the next year her father was trying to convince Niles to publish his manuscript about philosophy. And he told Niles, he told this editor, that his daughter could write a book of fairy stories, but Niles still wanted a novel about girls. Niles told Alcott's father that if he could get his daughter to write a non-fairy novel for girls, he would publish her father's philosophy manuscript. (laughs) What a weird uh, quid pro quo that is. Yeah. So to get your daughter to write me a book for girls, I will publish it. So then he's very motivated to get that to happen. Exactly. And to make her father happy and help him with his writing career, she wrote about her adolescence growing up with three, with three sisters. And it was published in September 1868. And it was uh, The Little Women. Wow. Isn't that crazy? But it was in parts, right? Like she, the first, the yes. way the book is now is that it's two parts that have been combined into one book. Yes. In fact, I think there were three books total. Oh, yeah. Um, but but the other two were very different. 
Um, the first one was a huge success, obviously. Like, she was a bestseller in her time. Um, it was not a, a Van Gogh thing. Which is really cool. <laughs> it's really cool. Because she got to see the fruits of her labor. Yes. She got to get her family out of it was poverty. It a Van Gogh thing. So, yeah. After the success of Little Women, she had fans. She had fans who for her. connected so deeply with the book that they traveled to Concord to see where Louisa Alcott grew up. Wow. One month, she had 100 strangers knock on the door of her house growing up, Orchard House. That is like fandom. Like- it's fandom. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard anything that like n- that. That is unlike anything I've ever heard in Brooklyn. <laughs> That's amazing. In 2019. Wow. Amazing. I was expecting Old Town Road, but, you know, this that is too. That is like Thelonious Monk shit. That's... That's pretty good. I'm Dizzy into that. Gillespie. I think Thelonious Monk. Did he play? Dizzy Gillespie. Yeah, yeah. Dizzy Gillespie was definitely a trumpet player. Yep. Thelonious Monk, I think, was a piano player. Yep, he was. Look at me go. Go you. And you can still hear it. Yeah. Um, we'll just keep going. She had a big ass fandom. Like, yeah. Pe- she had like she had stalker people, fandom. People basically. were obsessed with her. Yes. They the way people are obsessed with. Noted turf, J.K. Rowling. Yeah. But, but I digress. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it was, she wrote a character that had never existed before, really, in literature. Yeah. I think people saw themselves in her in a way that they had not before. How revolutionary is that? That she thought, I don't have anything to say to young women. I know. And then she writes <sighs> about herself, kind of. Uh-huh. And yep. people were like, oh my God, yes, this is what we've been waiting for. Yep. Representation matters. Yep. Exactly. I do like, though, she didn't like the attention. So... Of course not. If she's similar to Joe March. Yeah, she was kind of... I mean, I wouldn't even call her a recluse, but yeah, she didn't love... She didn't love a ton of attention. And so she sometimes pretended to be a servant when she answered the front door, hoping to trick her fans into leaving. No way. I guess because presumably there weren't easily accessible photos of her, so she could get away with that yeah she could she could do that and they would be like oh okay well then we'll come back later (laughs) the uh the second part was published in 1869 and she went on to write sequels such as little men in 1871 and joe's boys in 1886 cool so there were a few books in the little women um universe Saga. saga uh in the 1870s she wrote for a women's rights periodical and went door to door in Massachusetts to encourage women to vote. In the 1870s? Mm-hmm. Did, I guess Massachusetts women must have had the vote. I'm, they must have. In 1879, yep, here it is. In 1879, the, the state passed a law that would allow women to vote in local elections on anything involving education and children. Women's matters, of <laughs> yeah, course. Yeah, of course. But it was something. Uh-huh. And she was like, okay, we've got something. Yeah. So fucking do it. Take advantage of it. Yeah. And she registered immediately and became the first woman registered in Concord to vote. Holy shit. Isn't that cool? Yes. Um, yeah. Although she was met with resistance, she, along with 19 other women, cast ballots in an 1880 town meeting. 20 women total. Yep. Voted. Yep. <laughs> Amazing. Obviously, the 19th Amendment was uh, finally ratified in 1920, which was decades after she died. But she was fucking on board. She was starting that train. Yeah. Um, She never married or had biological children. But she did take care of her orphaned niece. I know. In 1879, her youngest sister, May, died a month after giving birth to her daughter. Yeah. Oh. As she was dying, May told her husband to send the baby, whom she had named Louisa in honor of her sister, <laughs> to her older sister. So instead of staying with her husband, her fa- like, instead of being like, hey, you're the dad of this kid, you take care of it. She said, hey, you're the dad of this kid, send it, send my daughter to my sister to, take, to raise. Oh. Isn't that crazy? So Louisa was raising Louisa. Yes, exactly. This is Louisa and Louisa Jr., yeah. my niece. They nicknamed, nicknamed her Lulu so oh, that they could, like, differentiate. That's so cute. I know. 
Um, the girl spent her childhood with Alcott, who wrote her stories and seemed a good fit for her high-spiritedness. Sadly, Lulu was just eight when Louisa died of a stroke in 1888, at which point Lulu went to live with her father in Switzerland. Well, she had all that fucking mercury poisoning. Yeah. She had all that shit How going on. How old was she? 18, she was born in 1832, died in 1888. So she's in her 50s. Mm-hmm. Wow, Excuse that's young. Me. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, if you are mercury poisoned, then that makes sense. If you're living with poison for your entire life. And your brain is addled. Yeah. Um, but Little Women is not necessarily the story we have been brought up to believe, nor is Louisa May the writer we have assumed. Obviously, we've talked a little bit about some of her strange um, outlying activities and legacies, things we didn't necessarily know about. But then I found Melinda Lowe's newsletter about the story from a couple months ago and thought I would include some of the things she had to say about it. Oh, okay. So she says, and I've, I've abbreviated some of this. I've cut out a few paragraphs just for timing. But she says, admittedly, there's nothing in the book that directly says Joe March is a lesbian. And some readers now interpret Joe as transgender because of her repeated identification with masculine pursuits. Barely a few pages into the book, Joe declares, it's bad enough to be a girl anyway when I like boys' games and work and manners. I can't get over my disappointment in not being a boy. But the idea is that Joe March has been sort of uh, identified as a lesbian by the queer community for a long time. And they've seen themselves in her. And so that's in part potentially what a lot of people related to in Joe March way, way back when the book was first published. That, or they shipped Joe and Lori and they were excited because of, you know, the romance, the potential romance there. Yeah, but that's the most but, that's the most interesting thing to me, especially for a story from that time, which, spoiler alert, for a book that's over a century fucking old, Yeah, is when Laurie proposes to her and she's like, no, no, no. And he's because he's so romantic and so sweet and he loves her so much. Mm-hmm. And he's just vehemently like, why? But I love you. It would work. And she's like, it would be a disaster. Are you fucking serious? No, God damn it. No. Yeah. Exaggeration. Yeah. But but, I think but, that's but she setup. still sticks with it. It's not a no that eventually turns into a yes. It's a no that stays a no. And then he moves on. Yeah. To her sister. But it's fine. Yeah. Um, she talks a little bit about Spoilers! that. No, no, no. She talks a little bit about that in here. And so it's good to have the background so vehemently expressed. You're welcome. <laughs> um, I don't know any other way to be. <laughs> That's why I love you. Others have interpreted Joe's devoted and sometimes jealous love for her sisters and mother as homoerotic. No. Oh, gross. <laughs> it's, in, you know, interpretations. Who knows? Some have seen the same in her friendship with boy next door, Theodore Lawrence, who goes by the nickname Lori, although Joe calls him Teddy. Laurie is an interesting guy because he loves spending all of his spare time with four girls, and he doesn't see anything wrong with treating Joe as a boyish equal. He is sensitive and artistic, but also wealthy and handsome. He can be read as both feminine, as as feminine and or masculine. So that's interesting. Like, you can read him as masculine simply because he's a boy, or you could read him as feminine because of his sort of feminized traits per the time period well and that to me is why i feel they make such great friends Mm -hmm. Um, in her essay queer performances lesbian politics in little women roberta sealinger trites what a name writes if we interpret laurie as feminized we can read nuances of a lesbian relationship in their friendship if we interpret joe as masculinized we can read it as homosexual okay super interesting However one reads Laurie, one thing is clear. Louisa May Alcott never intended for him and Joe to have a romantic relationship. Correct. As soon as Little Women was published in 1868, readers started to clamor for Joe to marry Laurie. But Louisa would not give in to their demands and wrote in her journal, Girls write to ask who the Little Women marry as if that was the only aim and end of a woman's life. I won't marry Joe to Laurie to please just anyone. Uh, Melinda writes, I loved Amy because she wants to be an artist and she never let go of that dream. She pursues it actively. When she's a young woman, she goes to Europe to paint, traveling to London and Paris and Nice and eventually uh, Vevey in Switzerland. 
I loved reading about Amy's travels, and I loved it even more when Lori showed up. At this point in the narrative, Lori has recently proposed marriage to Joe, who has rejected him. Lori is moody and dejected, but is still rich and well-connected. So he takes his young, broken heart to Europe, where he can be glamorously melancholy. As we know from our <laughs> previous episodes, that's very true in it's, the 19th century. Oh, yes. Especially Switzerland. Hello, Mary Shelley. Hello, Mary Shelley in Lake Geneva. <laughs> Um, he meets up with Amy and Nice, where he plays the part of heartbroken romantic hero, and she reveals herself to be all grown up. They've given, uh, oh no, sorry. They're given the chance to connect as adults rather than children, and their friendship soon moves into romantic territory. Uh, Laurie proposes to Amy in Vevey, Switzerland, a pretty town on Lake Geneva. <laughs> right. That's weird, I appropriate. know. That's very appropriate. Amy's dreams came true in the end. She became an artist and she married the person she loved. Perhaps Louisa married Joe off to Professor Bear in subsequent novels out of perversity because Louisa, who by all reports identified with Joe, could not give Joe the romance she truly desired. So she, in subsequent novels, she married her off to this like... To the German... Yeah, this yeah. professor guy and has a bunch of kids and hates him and it's a big thing. So in an interview with Louise Chandler Moulton for the book Our Famous Women, um, published in 1885, Louisa famously said, I am more than half persuaded that I am a man's soul put by some freak of nature into a woman's body because I have fallen in love in my life with so many pretty girls and never once the least bit with any man. Wait, Louisa May Alcott said this? Louisa May Alcott said this in 1885. Interesting. She says, I'm just going to say it again, just in case you missed it. I am more than half persuaded that I am a man's soul put by some freak of nature into a woman's body because I have fallen in love in my life with so many pretty girls and never once the least bit with any man. That really sounds a lot like Anne Lister, actually, in her journals. Oh, yeah, it kind of does. Although Anne was never convinced she had a man's soul. No, but, I mean, again, back in those days, vocabulary is different. Yes, exactly. And all of that, like, that could be interpreted so many different ways. And if you want to take it, like, having masculine traits made you feel, like, conventionally masculine traits were like, well, I feel like I'm a dude. That doesn't necessarily mean I'm saying I'm trans. It could. Right. But it could just mean, like, that's crazy. I fall in love with women. That's what a man does. Yes. Yeah. In fact, she goes on to say, although it's tempting to view Louise's words through a 21st century lens, yep. we should keep in mind that in 1885, popular understandings of sexuality and gender were different. Yeah. At that time, the concept of, quote, inversion was just being introduced by sexologists Richard Von Kraft Ebbing and Havelock Ellis. Whoa, names. <laughs> uh, those are some crazy names. A homosexual was believed to be an invert. Or someone, quote, whose physical gender did not match their mental gender. Today, we understand this as gender dysphoria, not sexual orientation. But in 19th century America, these issues and identities were overlapping and confused in ways that aren't directly comparable to what we know now. Right. I don't think we'll ever know for certain how Louisa thought of herself in terms of her sexual orientation or her gender identity. And even if she were somehow able to explain it to us from the grave, her understanding of herself might not align with our current language around these identities. Sure. But I do believe that Louisa did not consider herself to be just like everyone else. Um, Little Women is so well known now that I feel as if it's practically a fairy tale, ripe for retelling. If I were to retell it, says Melinda, Joe and Lori would still be boyish best friends, but they would be two butches growing into their butchness together. (laughs) And because this is now a fantasy novel and not the real 1860s, Amy and Lori get gay married and Joe falls in love with so many pretty girls and she becomes a world famous novelist, just like Louisa May Alcott. And I thought that that was a nice place to end it because I think that that's part of the fandom that doesn't get a lot of attention is the queer fandom Yeah, surrounding Little Women. I never thought about that. I think a lot of people have not. And I hadn't really until I found this newsletter and I was really floored by the readings of it and then hearing that quote from Louisa May Alcott herself about falling in love with such pretty girls um, and never wanting to marry Joe. Except in sort of 
a a way a fuck where you kind of way yeah yeah where joe is sort of forced into it and it's not even really a a love situation at all because she can't love men if yeah. you read it that way although the professor in the movie is going to be played by a french actor not german but french actor his name's louis garel and he garel and he's uh, got the best hair <laughs> Oh, um, but really? he's all, but he's French, so there's like this element of swagger, Frenchness, mm-hmm. which you know some could interpret as slightly feminine. Because I mean, I don't mean that in a negative connotation. I just mean <laughs> that like the French are more, you know, according to American lenses, mm-hmm. French dudes are not as ashamed to be more emotional, to be more, you know, yeah. That's a gross overgeneralization, but you get me. I get you. Hopefully, you get me, listener. I think they do, too. But I love Louis Grail, even though he's crazy. Well, so are they going to do multiple movies Mm. then, maybe? Mm. Well, anyway, I just thought it was important to dive into some of that. And because Melinda Lowe is a queer, I believe she identifies as a lesbian, but she is a, a queer storyteller, queer author, um that it was important to talk a little bit about her perspective of being a Little Women fan. And she really is like an uber fan, in part because, oh yeah, he's very hot. Um, in part because she identified with Joe. Yeah. As many, many queer women have throughout the centuries. And that's just Which not really... Which makes sense. It makes perfect sense. A lot of people read Joe as a lesbian. And so it's just... It's a fascinating part of the legacy of that book that we don't talk about, really. Yeah. And that doesn't get um, looked at in the adaptations. And it sounds like Greta Gerwig, from an interview I watched with her, knows about that interpretation Mm. and that part of the fandom um, and just chose not to indulge that, uh, that interpretation, which is fine. But I also feel like there are so many adaptations like, we could indulge it just this once, right? Yes. I mean, at least one time. <laughs> you lifting your arms up. <laughs> like, what? What? Why? But, you do it you one know, time. Because otherwise it's just the same adaptation over and over and over again. It's the same interpretation. But I don't know. We'll have to see the movie and see what they do with her. Agreed. I'll be very curious. Because mm-hmm. Greta knows. She knows about this the legacy of Louisa May and the things that she said and p- potentially felt. But um, that's Louisa May Alcott. Sweet. And that was awesome. Yeah. That was I, really awesome. She's such a fascinating character. She's more fascinating than her characters, <laughs> I think. Yeah. Right? She lived such an interesting life. Yeah. And had really fascinating motivations for doing the things that she did and writing what she wrote. Yeah. And being a fucking pulp fiction novelist just to fucking be like, I need to make some money, so I'm going to write some gothic pulp fiction. Who's with me? It's amazing. It's wild. I know. It's wild. I want to find some of it. A.M. Barnard. We'll have to look her up. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, that's that. That's Louisa May. Thank you. Would you like some on this day of... I would uh, very much like some on this day. On this day of history is what I was about to say. On this day of history. Well, as you know, <laughs> it's January 1st. So some things happened today. The new year started. I really like this one. One. Origin of the Christian era. <laughs> <laughs> year one. January... One, one, one. Yep. That's what the calendar read. One, yep. one, one. That's what on the oh, one, oh, says. one, one. <laughs> no O anywhere on that last one. 404. The last gladiator competition is held in Rome. That is later than I thought it was going to be. 404. That's some crazy shit. Um, 1502. Portuguese navigators discover Rio de Janeiro. I mean, if, to the Western world, yeah. Portuguese navigators, yeah, f- they discover, find it. They didn't discover shit. No, they discover it for themselves. They discover it for Europe. Yeah. Um, we found this. I, I left this one because we talk about Quakers so much. We do? We do. We have, we've, well, I mean, maybe I do. I've talked about a few Quakers. 
I've talked about um uh oh my god what was her name the Monopoly maker Lizzie Maggie yes. Maggie Ma- Ma- Maggie she was a Quaker um Elizabeth fuck my names but Bauer the one who was the spy anyway whatever so because talk about Quakers because I talk about Quakers a lot. Um, I left this one in. 1788, the Quakers in Pennsylvania emancipate their slaves. Yeah, they were really ahead of their time on mm-hmm. that one. 1788, they were like, all right, this is not something we're going to do anymore. This is not kosher. Let's, uh, I don't think God's cool with this. Let's, uh, yeah. make, let's stop. Yeah. Um, I thought this was interesting. 1801, the Irish Parliament votes to join the Kingdom of Great Britain, forming the United Kingdom. 1801. Whoa. Yeah. Okay, this is important. Okay, you've got my attention. 1818, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, or The Modern Prometheus, is published anonymously by the small London publishing house of Lackington, Hughes, Harding, Maver, and Jones. On New Year's Day. On New Year's Day. Good on you, Mary. I know. Um, 1863, the Emancipation Proclamation is issued by Abraham Lincoln. Oh, shit. Yep. Yep. Some, like, big shit happened today. Uh, New year, new start. No slaves. (laughs) For, yeah. For the Quakers and then for the rest of America. Yeah. Uh, Like, almost 100 years later. Yes. I know. It's a little sick, but, you know, yeah. Um, 1877. Queen Victoria is proclaimed Empress of India. Yikes. She never even went there. No. Um, 1892. Ellis Island opens. Jesus Christ. I know. This is crazy, right? Uh, 1896, German physicist Wilhelm Röntgen announces his discovery of x-rays. Yeah. 1898, Brooklyn merges with New York City to form the present city of New York. Damn, Hannah. This is a good on this day. 1908, the ball signifying the new year dropped for the first time at Times Square. Wait, what year? 1908. That early? Yeah. Wow. What? Huh? I know. What? That that must have been a marvel of fucking modern technology. Right? If it was was electrified, if that was like light bulbs, like electricity was in that before people had electricity in their fucking homes, (laughs) they would go see this giant ball that was lit up like the fucking starry night. And and it was, oh my God. I know. It seems like bullshit today, but can you imagine? It is bullshit today, but back in 1908. Because it's too goddamn crowded. I know you have to like line up. Can you imagine if an emergency situation happened? No. Don't give anyone any ideas. Sorry. But I thought that one was the coolest one, so I'm ending on 1908, the first ball dropping. January 1st, the first ball dropped in 1908. The first American ball dropped. The first American ball dropped. We were still ball quite young, dropped. but it happened. It happened. It seemed the appropriate time for the first ball dropping. I'll cheers to that. Cheers. <laughs> Ding. All right. What are you excited about, Deanna? I'm excited to show you The Mandalorian. Oh! Since you haven't seen it yet. That's true. All right. I'm going to introduce you to it. It's two Star Wars related, excited about things. That's true. That's true. It's okay. We can be Star Wars fiends here. We are big dorks over here at GWBB Podcast. Well, speaking of which, we didn't really do an outro in our last one, but if you want to follow us on social media, we're pretty much everywhere at GWBB Podcast. We're not on LinkedIn. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, fuck but, you know, LinkedIn fuck anyway. LinkedIn. <laughs> well, who, who uses it except for boomers? Like, truly. Okay, boomers. Anyways, follow us on social media. Email us at gwbbpodcast at gmail.com. Say hi. We're so happy to be back. And we're happy to start this new decade with all of you beautiful, beautiful people. Damn straight. Yeah. Couldn't have said it better myself. And on that note. <laughs> Peace out, witches. Bye-bye. Happy Happy New New Year! Thank you for listening to Good Witches, Bad Bitches. Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. Good Witches, Bad Bitches is hosted by Deanna Greif. Me. You. And you. (laughs) 
Hannah Ferguson. And we're produced by Benjamin Garst. Um, you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify. Google Play. Google Play. Pretty much more. anywhere you listen to your podcasts, you can find us there. We're also on social media. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, GWBB Podcast. You can also email us at gwbbpodcast at gmail.com. We love to receive emails. If you have a story about a woman in your life that you want to hear on air, uh, shoot it over to us. We would love to read it. If you want to help keep us running, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast. <laughs> Become a patron and help us, you know, pay for our hosting. Yeah, Patreon really helps content creators be able to continue to create their content. And it just kind of helps us break even on the costs of producing this podcast. And it would be really awesome if you wanted to help out. If you like it, you can be a part of it. Also, to help us out, you can rate, review, and subscribe. All of, the, all of those things are extremely helpful for us. They help other listeners find us. Yeah. Word of mouth, also good. Yeah. <laughs> our website is gwbbpodcast.com. You can find all of our episodes there as well as some other things bubbling out of our witchy cauldron. Good Witches, Bad Bitches is powered by Moon Bounce. Moon Bounce.